Good day, and thank you for tuning in to listen to your historical Grand Rapidium programming wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Whatever those are. Welcome to the Grand Rapids Local History Podcast. I'm Matthew Ellis. I'm Jessica Kroll. And I'm Travis. Don't lose your marbles, because in this episode, we talk about the history of newspapers, telephones, radio, TV, and public media in Grand Rapids. I thought, like, since we're doing communication and media... I thought we could we could start with like a very short introduction on uh, newspapers. Yeah, I like newspapers. Right. Yeah. Today we have the Grand Rapids Press, which is a part of M Live, right? Yeah. Yes. Back in the day, the late 1800s, there was what's five five daily newspapers. And they, they put out uh, like a morning edition, a evening edition, Saturday edition, Sunday editions. So there's a lot more. There's a lot more. But they were also a little more um, partisan than, than they are now. Um, so we had the, uh, the Grand Rapids Democrat, which was a, a, the daily paper. Um, and then we had the Grand Rapids Eagle, which was a Republican uh, daily paper. And that was established in 1844. Um, so that was one of the, the, the really early papers in the city. Um, we had the Evening Leader, which was an independent newspaper, and then the Morning Press, which was an independent newspaper. And then the Evening Leader and the Morning Press uh, were both purchased in 1892 by uh, a guy named G.G. G. Booth. And then that was um, renamed into the Evening Press which in 1913 changed its name to the Grand Rapids Press. I didn't I didn't know um, that the the Booth family went back that far. That's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had the, the Grand Rapids Herald as well, which was a pretty well-known paper. Um, the Grand Rapids Press and the Grand Rapids Herald were kind of like the two main um, local papers until the 1950s when the Herald stopped publishing. But we still have the Grand Rapids Press. That's crazy that there were so many papers that early, considering they all had to be printed by hand. Um, yeah. I took a tour of the Grand Rapids Press a few years ago for a college class, and they had one of the original printing presses in there. And just the the scale of what they can produce now, because, I mean, they're printing multiple papers. At least they were when I took the tour, because they were printing, like, the SITPAT and stuff like that. But just the scale of what they can do now compared to... I mean, these five that they were doing on an original print press back then, yeah, super impressive, yeah. Um, I, I know that the press is actually moving their printing location to Toledo, I think. Um, so yeah, yeah there. So that's gonna stop. I think they'll still print things there because it's a, an amazing facility. Um, but yeah, so that it, it, it's almost as though they've gotten too efficient, where we can we can now print. <laughs> So well, we can do it out of state and still deliver your your paper for the morning. Yeah, right. Have you guys seen the uh, the volunteers at the Grand Rapids Public Museum use the the old printing printing press they have there? I haven't. Oh, it's no, really me, cool. Yeah, say tell me more about that. So they uh, they have they have a volunteer who's trained on this machine and he'll sit there and he'll churn out like newsletters and pamphlets and stuff. And he's got it down to like, he, he can turn out hundreds of these in 
in a, like a matter of seconds, just how fast he's moving. And, um, he's got like a, a foot pedal that he, he operates. It's really cool. It's I, I, I'd recommend go seeing it. Uh, the nice thing about that is, you know, that he's not, he's not, he, if there's a job opening, he's going to, he's going to get it because they're like experience <laughs> needed right. turn of the century, not, yeah. not two thousands turn of the century printing press stuff. Um, there was a, a company um, down by 28th street that did the same. They, they hand printed everything. And I think oh, it's cool. neat to see that come back a little bit um, where it's not totally a lost skill. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, folks are putting some value in, in the creative and, and mm-hmm. the, the creation process instead of just, uh, you know, checking it on your phone, which is a, right. a fine, a fine mm-hmm. option. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a company on Fulton that prints things. Um, they're a printing company, and they print with the old the old printing presses. So, we had quite a few newspapers as Grand Rapids came into its own. I, I'm not really. I think it's kind of interesting to see that they had, you know, like the the Grand Rapids Democrat was a Democratic leaning paper. Uh, and I think that goes to the, the power of of editors. You know how editors were fairly important if you're the morning press you're like no we're going to be more independent than grand rapids eagle we were we're taking you know a republican slant on this um i think that's interesting that there were a number of voices for in theory news coverage right like we got it all we've got these different perspectives and i think that's interesting and we we've kind of moved on from then even the grand rapids press is is you know i think every newspaper is kind of in a in a new reality let's put it that way so in the 1950s, uh, the Herald, the Grand Rapids Herald, stopped printing, and that was one of the main, one of the main papers with the press. Um, mm-hmm. When did uh, when did M Live start and acquire the Grand Rapids Press? Oh, I should know this. I'm gonna check the Wikipedia. That's yeah. what I'm looking at. It redirects to <laughs> it redirects to Booth newspapers. I know they're sneaky, but I will say this: uh, Booth from 1892, GG Booth. It's the same. Wow. It's the same company. Uh, M Live Media Group was established in 2012 as oh, the Michigan okay. brand for Advanced Publications. And then it looks like Advanced Publications was what the Booth newspaper company was sold to. Um, so it looks like the Booth newspaper company owned the Grand Rapids Press, and then that was sold to Advanced Publications. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you remember back in the day um, when you would get like a weekly newspaper called the Advance? And it was just ads and you oh, know, maybe yeah. a few local articles that were average quality. I mean, it wasn't anything spectacular, but it was kind of... I liked reading, and so I would be like, "Sweet, the newspapers." <laughs> <laughs> I'd check all the ads. I don't know. I don't know why. I didn't have any money. I I get uh, newspapers, but mainly to use in uh, pressing flowers and stuff like that. Sure, and you can't really just find them. You have to. Right, right. You, you almost have, have, to, have to, to stockpile it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is that the tele? Ahoy! 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 Is that Mr. Graham Bell? I think so. Otherwise known as uh, Lord of the Rings. Ha ha ha. <laughs> he, uh, I've never seen that, so I don't get that reference. Sorry. I'm, I, I, I haven't seen it. But That's okay. That was a, that was I a haven't either. That was a well-played pun. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll give that to you. Thank you. So, telephones. Yeah. Um, so, telephones start... Um, 
in Grand Rapids uh, in the late 1800s. Um, the the first telephone line was installed in 1877, and the year before Alexander Graham Bell um, was first awarded uh, his patent for the telephone, and he was uh, uh, Graham Bell was a friend of J. W. Converse, who was president of the Grand Rapids Plaster Co. And so he had his um, uh, Converse had offices in Grand Rapids, and then his plaster mine and mill in the southwest of the city, which is kind of where the uh, Butterworth landfill is um, right now. I think he owned the land that the Indian mounds on the southwest side of town are located, and I think that's why they are called the uh, Converse mounds. That would make a lot of sense where in the late 1800s, that man owned that land. Yeah. And and then the burial mounds are... (laughs) Yeah, named after named him. After. Uh, yeah. Classic. Yeah. Um, so, how many how many people do you think in Grand Rapids at that time were friends of of Alexander Graham Bell? Yeah, I'm I, I'm not sure. I would imagine it was a good amount of people, just because of the furniture industry it was so large and had contacts throughout the uh, the country. I'm not sure where Alexander Graham Bell where his main operation was. Uh, the uh, UK. The UK, okay. But he died in Canada. Oh, okay. And he had a United States citizenship from 1882 to 1922. What happened in 1922? Was that his death? Or, yes, uh, did he Did they died. revoke it for some reason? No, he <laughs> died. <laughs> so uh, C went to Canada on accident. This was years ago uh, on accident when she was very young. Uh, because she wanted some beef jerky from the duty-free store and didn't realize she couldn't turn around. <laughs> and so to me, and it, whenever I hear of like, you know, he had his citizenship until I think, well, did they try to go to the beef jerky store and get in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So he passed away. That's, yes. Uh, that's, that's another way to, I guess, lose your citizenship. So the, the telephone exchanges uh, or exchange we we first start with the plaster mill and the plaster offices. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was just one line, or was there a switchboard of some sort, or was it integrated in later? Or it it sounds like it was just one direct line. Um, it it caused quite a stir in the city, um, and people like went to both because they didn't believe that it would work, and so there was like a, a group of people that went to the the phone at the mine and then a group of people that went to the phone uh, at the offices to see if it would actually, if it would actually work. But it sounds like there wasn't an exchange or anything. Okay. I wonder to me that skepticism is, 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 is valid. I mean, it's, it's new. You don't know anything about this technology. Um, I, I oftentimes wonder what, what new thing are we going to, to be confronted with? And like, no, this is yeah, and then in a hundred and X years, people will be saying, "Yeah, they didn't believe it at first. Um, so I, I kind of wonder, and I, I empathize with them. That would be a challenge to hear a voice that went over a wire. Yeah, um, it doesn't I, sound I, like it would work. I rode in the uh, self-driving car, and I was like, oh, "I don't think this is self-driving. Uh, <laughs> there's no way that could be." <laughs> That's really funny. But yeah, uh, but yeah, same same thing. Yeah, it's strange. Um, the switchboard eventually did open, 
the uh, the first telephone exchange, and that was in 1879, um, and it catered heavily to the furniture industry. Uh, the there was a um, countrywide um, ex- exhibition here in this in the city, and so it it mainly opened for that. And I thought it was interesting the uh, the um, story of Grand Rapids by Zizi Lydens. The it had the little story of the uh, children operators that got caught playing marbles while they were supposed to be working, and so they were replaced by young ladies. And all these all these phone calls are ringing and ringing and ringing. Right. Uh, that's uh, that's great. But our our phone exchange was open mainly for the furniture industry. And do we know? Can I guess? Was that in the what is the current AT and T building right now on the corner of like Fountain and Division? Is that where the first exchange was? Do we know? I'm not sure. I didn't see any reference to where it was located. Okay. We we have where it moved to, but not. Uh, not where it was first located. Okay. That's okay. I was just curious. I know AT&T has buildings all across the country in the smallest towns. And you can almost look at these buildings and say, that looks like an old telecom building. And uh, <laughs> they're just kind of everywhere because phone was everywhere. But I was just curious. Well, uh, speaking of AT&T, I think it's important to go back and talk about the telegraph really quick. That was like really the first big form oh, yeah. of communication yeah. um, starting in the 1840s. And then in 1885, Bell co-founded American Telephone and Telegraph Company, which is now AT&T. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I completely forgot about the telegraph. That's fair. That's fair. So did I. <laughs> so AT&T is doing its thing. Uh, Graham Bell's doing his thing. Uh, Grand Rapids is getting getting a switch exchange. We've we fired the boys and hired the young ladies. Um, <laughs> take us up to 1900, maybe. Okay. Um, so right after it opened, there was about 65 subscribers, and like I said, they were mostly furniture furniture industry uh, bosses. They only offered day service, so from like eight to eight to five or so, um, and then calls. You would you would call the operator and then you would say I want to talk to so and so and then the operator would patch you through and so um, in 1883 a few years later uh, they added long distance services so you could call places like Detroit and and stuff like that Chicago and then uh, a year later 24 hour service was added um, and then the Offices were um, moved to the corner of Ottawa and Lewis, where the back of the Grand Rapids Art Museum is now. And then uh, a few years after that, in 1899, the exchange service company built uh, their own building at uh, Ionia and Fountain. But I'm not sure. I looked at some maps to try and figure out what uh, corner of Ionia and Fountain, and I couldn't figure out which one it was, but it was at that intersection. And then... um, there was a, a com- competing uh, telephone service uh, that opened in the city in 1896, and that was the Citizen Telephone Company. And they their offices uh, opened on uh, at uh, 87 Campau, and they they started with uh, 1,600 subscribers. Um, but I didn't find uh, how many subscribers uh, the first exchange had at that time. But I, I imagine it was pretty comparable, if not more. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right on that. The the competition, I think, is important, and that they chose different sides of town almost 
uh, well, of downtown. Yeah. To, to set up their their services. So the competitors are on the other side of downtown. Something I wanted to circle circle back to is is by eighteen ninety six there certainly were no teenage boys getting in trouble <laughs> as operators because they were replaced, right? Mm-hmm. So so the first and this is from uh, AITelephone.com from the 1800s to the 20th century ish, uh, you know, obviously you had to physically connect the lines. So the first telephone operator was uh, George Willard Croy, who worked for Boston Telephone Dispatch early in 1870. And, and other teenage boys were hired because uh, <laughs> I guess they were probably just sitting around throwing sticks right. in the mud or something. And they're like, hey, kid, you want a job? <laughs> um, well, they earned. Uh, they they be, they're basically rude and rambunctious or playing marbles. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, this is one of the few industries that was male dominated and became almost exclusively female dominated uh, for better or worse. But Emma Nutt uh, was the first female operator in 1878 um, oh, in, wow. in, in September. So just a few months after the first boy, uh, George Willard Croy had been hired. And, uh, Shortly thereafter, uh, her sister Stella became the second telephone operator. Um, I thought that was that was kind of funny. Um, basically, they were like, "Hey, these kids aren't cutting it. Right. Your, your voice is nice and you're polite." <laughs> so pretty soon, everyone's trying to emulate this Emma, and of course, her sister Stella's like, "Hey, I I can do the same." So so because they were they were quote kindly and courteous. <laughs> They became the, the the preferred choice for this job, but they were also paid significantly less than oh, wow. than what say George Willard Croy would have made. Allegedly, uh, Emma, the first uh, female operator, worked about fifty fifty ish hours a week, and she made about ten dollars a month. Now I don't know what the male counterparts take home would have been so we can't compare that but you just it's just one of those things where you're like sweet we we're really good at this job and we're gonna do it and everyone is for that because they're quote kindly and courteous nature and also (laughs) they can get paid significantly less so uh females tended to to see that as a step up Mm -hmm. um you know from from being in a service industry or a factory or something and um Basically, you had to pass a height, weight, and arm length test to make sure they could actually fit in the cramped space. Wow! Um, <laughs> and and reach, uh, you know, Mr. Johnson, who's maybe had to be patched in way up top. I don't know. Wow. So um, we also didn't. It wasn't that just if you were a female, you could get this job, even though the requirements were weren't. There wasn't a high bar. Besides those three tests, um, but they they still telephone companies still did not hire immigrants, um, black folks. Uh, you had to be a certain height, and and also you, you know your voice had to be somewhat normal. So if you had an accent, wow. like pretty much forget about it. And I, I think that includes most of us here in the Midwest, probably with our with our <laughs> yeah. Midwest accents. Uh, I don't know if we would have if we would have cut the mustard there. So uh, obviously, it's a dead skill or a job at this point. But I thought that that kind of the whole roller coaster ride of of boys being bad, and then the the females came in and, and made it great, but they're getting paid less mm-hmm. than the than the, the, the guys who are not doing great. So that's that's my little uh, my little aside 
on switchboard operators. And and if you asked me a question, Matt, I would probably not be able to answer it, but okay, um, I'm happy to give it a <laughs> shot. You can too if you want, Jess, but I don't, I don't think you need to. The accents thing is interesting because I don't know if either of you have seen Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but they were oh, yeah. in New York and she was a switchboard operator and they don't, their accents are less subtle than ours are. So that's interesting. Do we know when the operators, when that um, system stopped? I don't, but I think through the magic of of the internet, Jess is going to tell us <laughs> fairly shortly. The uh, the Leidens had some some uh, kind of tidbits on uh, phone use in the city. They they noted that um, Grand Rapids kind of became the central hub for 31 counties in Michigan in 1911. Schools and hospitals were required to be um, connected by uh, phone and that was uh, by the order of the state of Michigan I get I you know it, it kind of speaks to how quickly the phone became integral to, to operations and to communication yeah absolutely so a quick Google search um, like the first result tells me that cord switchboards were replaced in the 70s and 80s which reduced operator involvement in calls. But I think the answer will surprise you when the last switchboard office ended. Can anybody take a guess as to when that was? I'm going to guess 2005. That, that, seems, that seems super recent. I'm going to say the 80s. Uh, right in the middle. It was 1991. Oh, wow. Um, so in 1983 in Bryant Pond, Maine, Susan Glines was the last switchboard operator for a hand crank phone uh, when that exchange was converted. And then manual central office switchboards continued to be in operation in rural areas until um, 1991. But they were central battery systems with no hand cranks. Wow. Uh, in um, 1927, the first uh, transatlantic call uh, was made from Grand Rapids to London, and that was um, the owners of the Wurzburg department store called um, the Wurzburg Dry Goods Company in London. Okay. From a, from an infrastructure standpoint, and I, I've said this before, but I, I think infrastructure is super important. If you can't see it, it's mm -hmm. important. Just how, how our world moves, I think the infrastructure yeah. is fascinating. And uh, to get a transatlantic phone line put in place must have taken years or an army of boats and humans and divers. And, and I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. Uh, and I know with fiber optics, even uh, even today, like there are not a whole lot of, of transatlantic or transpacific fiber lines mm -hmm. in the world and kind of goes to show you that to get a, a a telephone line across the Atlantic Ocean was was not easy then and it's not easy now right right do you think they were checking on the status of an order for uh, for someone at the front desk <laughs> Pro prob <laughs> probably not uh, a disgruntled customer sure <laughs> another interesting um, tidbit is that um, the phone booths appeared in Grand Rapids in 1952, and so we have we used to have phone booths 
um, around town. I don't ever remember a phone booth in town. I remember some pay phones, but I, those are not the same as. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're not the same as the phone booth. I think uh, we've got a few photographs of some some like bright red phone booths um, downtown. I can't remember the last time I've even seen a payphone anywhere. I know there's still a few around, but I haven't seen any in years. I kind of miss that that mystery, if you will. Like, you know, you you call your friend's house and no one answers, and you don't know where they are. <laughs> and you have to, you know, play with your brother or something. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I I still I kind of remember that disconnect, and. Uh, and now you know where folks are, for better or worse. Right. Yeah, I remember the uh, the stress of calling a, a friend's house and having to talk to their parents. Oh, to... God. <laughs> You're like, do I hang up? Yeah. <laughs> this is not good. That was real. That was a real stress. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the things you missed out on, Jess. Oh, no, I still, I mean, home phones were still popular when I was growing up. Okay. So I'd call my friend, hi, is Kelsey there? Can I talk to Kelsey? Like, we don't know. We don't know where she is right now, but we'll have her give you a call back. Like, yep. Okay. It's really important. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I still don't do uh, voicemails or answering machines. I just, I'll just hang up and, and let them know that I called by sending a text later on or something. But I, yep. I still don't like the voicemail. I couldn't find. I thought. I thought it would be interesting to find out when the first cell phone uh, came to Grand Rapids. Oh boy! But I couldn't. I couldn't really find anything. Yeah, yeah. I could see how that would be difficult to track down because yeah. maybe maybe it came into Lansing and was driven to Grand Rapids. You know. Right. Um, but no, there, there must have been infrastructure. Um, yeah. Boy, I'll bet if you had given me some homework, I could have found out. Telephones in automobiles and cars um, started in 1948. But those were still like wired into the to the car. Yeah, I can't find anything about cell phones in GR. So what I would have done, my approach would have been to look for towers. Oh. To mm-hmm. find out when American Tower or whoever built the first tower. And to me that would have probably narrowed it down to maybe a few years before that. Um something something cell phone related. Um Grand Rapids boasts the first one of our one of our greatest accomplishments is the first uh, selfie. Oh, yeah, we have there is a um, photo of a guy who's like taking his first portrait and he's got the it, it's it was in like the 1800s and he's got the little clicker sitting there hidden in his hand. And so we like to say that it's the first uh, selfie. <laughs> He uh, he's like, dude, imagine the selfie stick I would need right. <laughs> to get a wider shot. That is really funny, though. Do you think he was just testing the equipment? Like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. He, or, or he, he, look, he looks pretty smug about it. So it's <laughs> uh, great. Like, wait till people see this. Yeah. Of course, now we have smartphones. And I remember the two way radio feature with Nextel, which was absorbed by Sprint, which was absorbed by T Mobile. The push to chirp. Mm-hmm. That was that was a classic. You know, you'd be sitting somewhere and someone would leave theirs on speakerphone and all of a sudden someone's talking very loudly in their pocket. <laughs> precursor to the precursor to being on speakerphone. Um in public. beepers be- beepers were a thing. Are beepers still a thing? Or those uh gone the way of the telegraph? I always feel like I see those being used in like medical shows. 
like doctors still carry them or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Uh, now we're, we're moving on to the radio form of communications. Yeah, the radio. So in 1886, um, that was when uh, radio waves were first discovered uh, by German physicist Hein Heinrich Hertz. Heinrich. 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 For sure. Thanks, Jess. That's, uh, <laughs> we've heard the name before in college classes. And needed it for some test. And that's oh, it. yeah. Uh, but it wasn't until the, the early 1900s when it was widely um, commercially sold. What would they have listened to? Oh, I'm not sure what the first uh, the the first news program that was broadcast um, by radio in in the entire country uh, was 1920 in Detroit. Yeah, it was on KDKA and it was on election day. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah. So did they talk about the election results? Uh, well, so they I should know this from memory, but I don't because it's been a few years since I learned it. But according to Google, they chose that day because it was election day and the power of radio was proven when people could hear the results of the Harding-Cox presidential race before they read about it in the newspaper. Wow. Nice. And uh, we all know that President Cox was a fine president. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so Detroit, the first ever news radio broadcast. That's kind of neat. Yeah. The, the first store that sold radios in Grand Rapids opened in 1922, and it was located at 211 Diamond. And it was opened by Leo Robinson and Don Geldersleeve. And they, they sold home radios to Grand Rapids residents for the first time. Okay, um, so we're a little bit behind Detroit. Yeah, but, just a little but bit. But that's okay. So would it have been possible to tune in and hear those Detroit broadcasts at that time? I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that that uh, people in the city had purchased them from elsewhere. Uh, they could have gone to Chicago or something or ordered okay. them from a, from a magazine or something. Okay. Um, but qu the, the store quickly became uh, very popular for radio enthusiasts. They liked to, to hang out there and uh, swap tips and stuff. and uh, Tips um, about how to uh, set up a receiver properly or um, – Yeah, yeah, and, and, and broadcasting. Uh, amateur radio is a, is a pretty big underground uh, uh, thing. Nice. In September – uh, 16, 1924, just a few years after they opened their shop, the first uh, local radio program was broadcast here in Grand Rapids. Um, and that was um, C.J. Litcher Co. Um, and the Radio Corporation of America. And uh, they held um, kind of an exhibition uh, about the radio in the Klingman uh, Furniture Building. And so just showing what the radio could do all the all the fun things about radios yeah and and again like the like the telephone i mean there's this there's this learning curve where we as consumers i suppose uh need to know what we need to buy because we don't we don't know that would have been kind of a fun exhibition to go to in the Klingman building and that was in 1924 but at that point robinson and gildersleeve weren't weren't done yet is that is that correct right right um the following month, they, um, Robinson and Gildersleeve, were granted a license uh, to open their first radio station, and that was um, WEBK, and that was opened in October of 1924. Um, 
in one of their their very first broadcasts um, was the evening service of Trinity Community Church, which is uh, right downtown. Okay, I like that. They didn't they didn't uh, try to broadcast the the morning service. Right. We'll just take it easy. <laughs> we'll shoot for the evening service. And... Yeah, and and they had um, so they had a few remote studios. Um, they had set up around town, and one of them was in the Trinity Community Church, sure. and so it's it probably the easiest uh, easiest thing for them to to broadcast on uh, short notice. Sure. Oh, they had remote studios. So they had they had uh, a few remote studios around town. Uh, there was one in the Row Hotel, one in uh, the Wealthy Theater, and one in the Trinity Community Church. Um, and so the remote studio studio in uh, Wealthy Theater would would put on concerts. They would feature uh, local artists, local musicians. And this is this is 1920s. So this is well before the Wealthy Theater was was kind of rebirthed and brought back to life around the 2000s ish. Um, yeah. So it's been doing that and involved in music and local musicians in the community for a very long time. For a long time. Yeah. I like what happened in 1926. They uh, their call sign uh, from WEBK. We don't know. We I don't know what WEBK stands for, um, but I do think it's interesting that in 1926 they changed to WOOD because their main benefactor was uh, the Furniture Manufacturers Association, and it included making wood furniture. Yeah, uh, that really made me chuckle. I yeah. never put that together until just now. And then uh, it, it, it's funny because their um, rival, uh, the second station to open in Grand Rapids, first had a call sign of WBDC, and it changed to WASH Wash because their benefactor was a uh, dry cleaning company. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's terrific. Uh, I often think of uh, that, that some some businesses like if if, you're, if I'm going to open a business in the Grand Rapids area, I want to find uh, a place that I can call WBDC or or something of that nature because there's mm-hmm. there's such a rich naming history that you can then connect yeah. the actual history to the name. Um, I think folks are missing out on an, uh, <laughs> a, a great naming convention, and I'd be happy to talk to to them more about it if they needed some ideas. Shoot more, an email to us. More uh, great ideas coming out of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Just shoot us an email. Grand Rapids Local History Podcast at gmail dot com. Get you taken care of. Fun fact: Did you guys know that? All radio stations uh, east of the Mississippi start with a W. West of the Mississippi start with a K. Uh, Mexico's X and Canada's C for their call signs. I did, I did not know that. That's really cool. Yeah. That's that's a, a that's a trivia winning uh, fact right there. <laughs> well, I mean, I hope I hope I hope it wins your trivia anyway. Thank you. The the Grand Rapids Public Museum has a really neat photograph of the interior of the uh, W O O D um, station. And it's got a, a like a big sign that says "Danger, High Voltage." Uh, I, I didn't think that radio operating was was such a dangerous uh, operation, but uh, it seems like it was. Yeah, I think you're mostly safe until you start getting to the transmission stage. Yeah, and then there's not just high voltage, but weird things in the air that can do weird things to you. At least that's the way that's been my experience with cell phone towers. I would. 
I have spliced fiber to to light up to connect cell phone towers. Hmm. I've not climbed cell phone towers. You can there's some radioactivity going on there, yeah, uh, as well as the high voltage. So Mr. Hertz would uh, would have been impressed with with that. <laughs> I'm sure he would have been curious. So we have uh, wood radio and wash radio, and I think those are great names. Uh, and this was 1925, 1926. What happened? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened moving forward? Um, so, so they they continued to operate for a while as rivals. They started not making as much money as their financiers had hoped, and so in 1933, they were uh, leased to um, the King and Trendle Broadcasting Company that operated out of Detroit, and they were kind of consolidated into what was known as the Michigan Radio Network which was kind of a statewide radio operation. And by that time, most of the residents of Grand Rapids had radios. Um, I had here that by 1940, uh, nearly 96% of residential units had a radio installed. That's that's pretty solid. Uh, it sounds like the, the, the convention in, in the 1920s, the radio convention did its work, did its job. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Klingman building was probably full of these people. They get the radios. Um, 96%. That's, that's great. Yeah. That, that's pretty high, uh, compared to newspaper subscribers or, or TV, TV owners. Sure. Uh, in, in 1945, the King and Trendle broadcasting company purchased, uh, wood and wash, uh, stations completely and kind of consolidated them into one and so it was just renamed wood with um and then and then they set up its own corporation as the wood broadcasting company and then uh there was uh so all this stuff is is kind of governed by the um fcc and so the fcc had to approve or deny uh radio sales and stuff and um the wood broadcasting company had a contract with nbc so they're kind of like a nbc distributor. And when King and Trendle Broadcasting Company tried to sell wood um, to the American Broadcasting Company, the FCC kind of put a kibosh on that um, because of the outstanding contracts. And so that opened the door for um, Harry M. Bittner, who owned the Grand Wood Broadcasting Company, to buy the Wood Broadcasting Company in 1948. I know that in 1946, the FCC was probably more focused. Obviously, cell phones didn't exist. Cable television was maybe being thought about. Um, so the FCC did actually enforce rules of ownership, which is which is very different from our current FCC. And I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but Wood, Wood was not the only radio station in town. We have some classics that came around right about then as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 1940, W-A-L, D- yeah, WLAV uh, came on the air. They were known for their infamous uh, river raft races um, by Riverside Park. Have either of you seen uh, th- those photos? No, but I'm curious to hear about this. Oh, they're they're pretty wild. They it was it was a pretty raucous time uh, in the in the 60s and the 70s, and each raft was kind of decorated. Almost like a a float, like a parade float, but there were rafts. But there was it was it was 
very controversial. Um, there was there was a lot of drug use, a lot of uh, drinking, and so the the radio station in the city kind of uh, stopped had to stop that. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah. In 1946, um, the the well known WGRD came on the air. By 1994, WGRD was the the number one hit music station. They had their their well known show, the uh, the Free Beer and Hot Wings show. Uh, WGRD, their their call letters were for Grand Rapids Daily. They would station, and then at night, you know, they would they would turn off their music. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they weren't the only ones to do that um, as stations started. But yeah, so the Grand Rapids Daily, it was not the Grand Rapids Nightly. Was there a Grand Rapids Nightly? I hope. I hope that yeah. uh, that underground music or that underground radio culture. My guess is that someone that knew Robinson and Gildersleeve definitely had some pirate radio stations going on. Oh, I'm I'm sure. I'm sure. And I would that that could be a whole other research topic. Yeah, there was one in in 1962. Uh, WXTO came on the air, and that was a. Uh, station that was owned by the uh, Catholic Diocese of Grand Rapids, and it was operated by Aquinas College. And then eventually WGRD took control of that station in 1971. And so WGRD's, their their station was, what, 97.9? 97.9? Yeah, um, and then 96.9 was the WLAB. WG's numbers were originally WXTO's numbers. And WGRD took control of them uh, when they took control of the station. Um, they um, transmitted uh, their station on Aquinas's campus until 1974. And we uh, there's there's now a, a college radio station at at uh, Grand Valley State University. Um, I, I think radio's still fairly popular amidst uh, mergers and acquisitions and craziness at the at the national scale with with ownership changes and buyouts and mass firings of DJs who have worked their entire lives in this industry and are cut uh, for a syndicated show. And that kind of loops back into to Free Beer and Hot Wings where, you know, as a syndicated show, um, and, and I can remember listening to them when they were not a syndicated show, there has to be some some aspect in some corner of one's mind where you think that we just we just signed a two-year syndication deal for whatever town and because of that some dj's out of work right uh it's it's a tough industry but it's still an industry where you can you can get involved in and you can do all right and you can kind of cut your teeth and make your mark it's it's a unique industry if i'm not mistaken radio is still the number one format for media even in 2020 Oh wow, it's it's everywhere. It's it's in the air right now around us. <laughs> All you need to do is turn on that receiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very cost effective. It can go for miles and miles and miles, and that's FM. That's really neat. I know the uh, um, they have the the Gray and Green show on right now, and that that is the the first two female lead DJs um, in Grand Rapids. That's awesome. And and you said that happened. Maybe three years ago, that that program came into existence. It hasn't been long, correct? Right, it, it hasn't been long at all. So, at some point, when someone else is doing whatever the future of podcasts are, they will say something like, "And in 2016 or 18, the first female female show is this." And I think that 
it's it's taking some time. Any other cool radio tidbits? Maybe two years ago, I got really into looking uh, up stuff about amateur radio. There was a there was a great How Stuff Works podcast episode on it, it's called Ham Radio, mm-hmm. um, and the amateur radio operators go by hams. And Grand Rapids has their own uh, Grand Rapids Amateur Radio Association, and it it's it seems like a really cool really cool operation. You have to get uh, different licenses to to learn how to operate and send out and receive signals, and they really see themselves as um, uh, it's like a fun hobby, but it's also seen as kind of like a public service because when a natural disaster happens, radio operators are some of the only ways that people can still communicate with without relying on te- uh, other technology. Um, so during like a hurricane, often the Red Cross or um, FEMA will use um, amateur radio users in the communities that they have to go into to communicate. Um, and I thought that was just fascinating. During the Cold War, the Office of Civil Defense sent Grand Rapids a, a checklist of supplies to gather in case of like a natural disaster or like a nuclear attack. And the 10th entry on the checklist was a radio with an independent power supply. And then two entries down, uh, the 12th entry was a first aid kit. So they kind of categorized the radio as more important than the first aid kit. Uh, Amateur radio and and ham radio, it's a really neat subculture. And, And you're right, it is fun. But there's also some real practical purposes and, mm-hmm. and some adv- advantages to having that as a, an unofficial secondary or tertiary backup for communications. It's it's not the worst to have around. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. My brother and his best friend are both amateur radio licensed. Oh, cool. I feel like you buried that. That should have cool. come, come out earlier. <laughs> Tell us more. Um, I don't know a lot. I just know my brother's best friend, Ryan, um, his license plate has the radio signal on it and his, uh, his call sign is on there. Um, I just Googled my brother's name and found the FCC page with his license on it. Uh, He's been granted it. Okay. So he must've, he renewed it in the past couple of years because they use their radios when, um, uh, to talk to each other when we go up north and go camping in case we don't have service or anything like that they'll just use their radios but uh it looks like the licenses are good for 10 years that's all i know from looking at this page but cool. uh yeah so do you have your your setup are you able to communicate with your brother or not no because i don't i don't have my license okay it's just him and his best friend but okay. i don't i don't think he uses it very often we should all go get amateur radio licenses. Yes, and then we'll we'll, we'll record yeah. that signal. Yeah, yeah. And, and suddenly, a digital recording remotely it doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> Do we want to tune into some TV? Yeah, yeah. I think we can uh, turn the turn the turn the channel. All right. <laughs> Let's do that. I'm going to adjust the rabbit ears a moment. No, um, no, no pun from Jess. I'm waiting. No, I don't, I don't have anything. Okay. Okay. This is first tele- television station. That was WLAV TV. Uh, and that was on channel seven. And that started in uh, August of 1949. And it was the first station, first TV station in Michigan outside of Detroit and just the fourth TV station in Michigan. And it was owned by Leonard Adrian Versluis, and he also owned the WLAV radio station. I'm glad you brought that name up. LAV named after that guy. 
<laughs> so I think oh, it's wow. important to touch base uh, and and uh, and make sure that we know that Mr. Versluce certainly has his name on a radio mm-hmm. station. Um, the uh, Grandwood Broadcasting Company, which bought, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> did did we mention them earlier? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Grandwood yeah. Grandwood Broadcasting uh, definitely came up early when we were talking about radio. Right, 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 right. Okay. But yeah, so in uh, in 1951, uh, the Grandwood Broadcasting Company purchased uh, WLAV-TV and changed the name to Wood TV. And so they owned the, the radio um, Wood FM and Wood TV. And so they began broadcasting, broadcasting um, in October of 1951. So uh, WLAV-TV started in 1949, the end of 1949. Mm-hmm. And in the towards the end of 1951, it had already been purchased. Th- this seems like a time where maybe radio stations and TV stations were coming online and then being sold and being purchased. Mm-hmm. Um, how much do we know how much that in 1951 dollars they, they purchased the station for? Uh, it looks like 1,367,000. A tidy sum. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what that would be in uh, today's dollars, but 13.6 million. Wow. I looked that up earlier. I was ready. I was sitting on that one. Yeah. 13, $13,665,688. Wow. Um, assuming the average inf- inflation rate is yeah. uh, 3.39%. Oh. But uh, so we're talking, I mean, this is 1950s. We're talking big money here. So, yeah. so communications in Grand Rapids is becoming affected by mm-hmm. large purchases and is making people millionaires when yeah. they sell. Right. And and after only what, like two, two and a half years of being being opened? Yeah. Wow. So in 1951, uh, the, the, the Grandwood Broadcasting Company purchased it, flipped mm-hmm. the switch, changed it to Wood TV. And in, yep. and, uh, and in 1952, it switched to Channel 8, which is uh, still what Wood TV is known for, being Channel 8. Yeah, Wood TV 8. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they switched to Channel 8 because um, they were receiving some signal interference from Chicago. I'm speculating here, uh, but my guess is that these frequencies, these channels had been assigned and they had probably been assigned by a distance. And I'm guessing there was a little some kind of instrument used to draw a red circle that mm-hmm. represented a 250 mile range. And they're like, clearly nothing's going to get further than that 50 <laughs> mile range. But because it's coming over Lake Michigan mm-hmm. um, years ago, I would I would get digital interference on wireless microphones from Milwaukee. And um, that's my speculation. Again, open to correction. Uh, shoot us an email. But I was able to track it down through the FCC's website through some emails. And I refrequencied my my wireless microphones, and that took care of it. But again, you don't think that 85 miles across Lake Michigan is going to happen. But it can. So. Right. Um, that's my suspicion. Uh, that's probably why they switched. Uh, I like Wood TV8 as a name much better than I would like Wood TV7. <laughs> I, just adding yeah. the, the monosyllabic eight at the end, I think, sounds nicer and rolls off the tongue and wraps up nicer than a, than seven. Yeah. So yeah. That's my input. So this doesn't have to go on the podcast, but I have some like a weird story to tell about radio interference. I think it was radio interference. So there's not a lot of signal um, and not a lot of anything between L.A. and Phoenix and uh, 
my boyfriend was driving from LA to Phoenix a few weeks ago. We were on the phone. He was around like, it was either Centennial or Quartzsite, but he was on I-10. And all of a sudden there's this weird interference and I could tell that he was talking. However, it wasn't his voice. It was what I can only describe as the adults in the Peanuts movies talking. <laughs> and he said that it it sounded the same for me. Um, it was the, it was so creepy. We've limited it on the aliens, but that's, it was weird. We've never been able to reproduce it either. And there's no towers anywhere near where he was on the highway at that point i don't know why this wouldn't go on the podcast <laughs> yeah that's, that's that awesome. really interesting uh and and to me there's just a lot of it, it, the the physical world has electromagnetic stuff everywhere and it's just there and and there's no doubt that weird things can happen Maybe a mm-hmm. solar flare happened a, a year ago on the on the sun or however long it takes to get here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not that qualified, but I can speculate that those some of those weird things uh, are probably not necessarily unrepeatable, but due to a circumstance that may not happen for another 10 years or 100 years or whatever the case. And it's just a unique phenomenon, and I think you should enjoy it. Have either of you heard of the Max Headroom incident? No. Um, it was it was a, a TV broadcasting hijacking in 1987 where somebody had either climbed on top of a Chicago skyscraper and uh, plugged in somehow to the uh, two broadcasting stations in Chicago and aired a video of a guy in a Max Headroom mask and he was like a he was like a, a TV character. And it was a super bizarre video where like weird noises were happening. And it was only for like 90 seconds during an episode of like Doctor Who. Um, it, it, it was it was a super bizarre. You can find videos of it on YouTube. Interesting. That reminds me of the War of the Worlds podcast and how or podcast radio broadcast and how people thought it was real. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, as humans, would we be less gullible now if Facebook and Twitter blew up and reputable sources said, hey, there's been this catastrophe in this area of the world. I mean, would we be so naive? I think we would um, when a trusted news source is telling you something or something that you've grown accustomed to trusting is telling Mm -hmm. you something. You might believe it. So I kind of sympathize with with folks who were freaked out. Uh, And it's to me, it's easy to look back with that hindsight. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I can't believe they fell for it. <laughs> but you know, I I can I can see how you would be able to yeah. fall for it. Media is powerful. Uh, yeah. As a, as an aside, I'm I'm writing my dissertation right now on um, misinformation, and so like all of the misinformation in the news uh, is is not new. You know, is yellow journalism in the past and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So it's it's a really interesting really interesting topic. Yeah, that's one of those things that I appreciate, Matthew, when you do bring that that 100-year, 150-year, 200-year perspective in, you realize that just it's it's not necessarily new. The phenomenon that that Jess experienced somewhere between Phoenix and LA probably happened some other time. Maybe it's aliens, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I but I think that that mystery is okay. Mhm. And you can cut this back in now. Yes, that's for post-production. Got it. (laughs) 
So would TV change to Channel 8 due to some some less than mysterious interference from Chicago? Have have any mm-hmm. of you seen the uh, the mirage of Chicago over Lake Michigan from Michigan? I haven't. It's I pretty have neat. It's it's bizarre, right? It shouldn't be there. There's a skyline in the sky. There's Chicago. Just really weird. Yep. Uh, weird things happen over the lake. So that's cool. Where do we go from 1952? Soon after uh, Grandwood Broadcasting purchased the station and turned it into uh, Wood TV8, Time Life Inc., which I think is the uh, the publishers of Time Magazine and Life Magazine created a broadcasting corporation uh, and then purchased Grandwood Broadcasting. And then they set up the uh, corporation solely dedicated to Wood TV8, uh, the Wood Broadcasting Corporation. Nice. Since then, there have been uh, more mergers and acquisitions, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. At this point, uh, well, we're on Wood TV8, uh, Lynn TV, LAN TV, uh, acquired Wood TV in 1999. So it's it's been uh, a Lynn media station for some time. I can't say if that's for better or worse, but that's mm. what it is. And it's been it's been affiliated with um, with NBC, NBC, ABC, yeah. all those um, in different times. Yeah. All of the TV and radio stations that we just talked about are commercial, but public media is really big in West Michigan as well, which is why we have WGVU located in Grand Rapids. So the history of that, there's actually not a lot there. It's still a pretty new TV station. Um, At the time, Lovers was president at Grand Valley, and um, Grand Rapids was the largest media market in the United States to not have a PBS station in the 1970s. Hmm. Um, Grand Rapids or Grand Valley was um, founded in 1960. uh, And the first WGVC broadcast was December 17th, 1972. So 12 years after the college was even founded. The idea for a public radio and, excuse me, the idea for a public television station NGR was suggested by Bill Seedman, another um, common or popular name with Grand Valley, West Michigan. And at the time, Gerald R. Ford was a minority leader and a congressman for the district. And he talked with President Lubbers about funding the station. Uh, Three weeks after that conversation, the station got $500,000 for funding from uh, Congressman Ford. Wow. The station was very much integrated with campus, uh, so the students could work at the station, be involved with the station, be PAs, stuff like that. And like I said, the first broadcast was 1972. Uh, However, it was broadcast under the call letters WGVC because at the time it was Grand Valley State College. I don't remember the year that it was changed to Grand Valley State University, but when it was transitioned to university status. The call letters changed uh, for the station as well. So it's it's not a lot of history because it's still, like I said, a pretty new station, but it's still very much a part of the university. Like students get jobs there all the time. Uh, I worked there. It was after college, but um, students from other colleges as well are able to now work at WGVU. Um, and it's, it's broadcast all over West Michigan from Kalamazoo to Muskegon and a really big part of the community. That's cool. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the local hosts are going, if they're not already, they're going to be remembered as 
giants of local media um, mm -hmm. and just really terrific humans. Yes. Also, uh, Jess, so so Grand Valley College was a thing, um, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, but Grand Valley had had William James College within Grand Valley. As a matter of fact, those were the buildings that folks that went to William James College uh, had their classes in. And there are still some folks that exist in the industry that are like, hey, we we went to William James and it was it was kind of a cool thing. And then I think in 1983, it was restructured. But yeah, uh, early 70s to to mid 80s. It, and it was kind of a cool non-departmentalized college with programs, not necessarily majors. And uh yeah. Interesting. And Travis and I both, we both graduated from the School of Communications at Grand Valley. And I'm sure we both had uh, plenty of classes in Lake Superior Hall. <laughs> yes. That's where uh, <laughs> Lake Superior Hall is uh, one of, is, is the place where we karaoke'd. So before class, uh, several classmates and I would fire up an old movie projector which was in the back of the class and it's you know the the slanted uh stadium seating style and in this old film projector still had a lamp in it and we would use that as our spotlight and then sing a karaoke song uh which was not appreciated by anyone <laughs> and and why we kept doing it i don't know but that that was kind of an all-star group of humans one of them works now at Wood TV and, and has done a remarkable job and has really given my communications degree from Grand Valley more value uh, than I've given it to him. Um, that was a really enjoyable time and, and for us and certainly not that enjoyable <laughs> for our classmates, which either tolerated it or started arriving late uh, so they would avoid it. Um, Travis like, also... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Lake Superior Hall. That's that's my Lake Superior Hall memory. And it's slightly haunted. So. And then going back, Travis, you mentioned that Grand Valley had a student radio station, which is WCKS The Whale. Uh, it's only broadcast online, um, aired online. Uh, however, they also have a, the, a paper, the Lanthorn, and they mm -hmm. have their own student television station, GVTV, uh, which is broadcast on oh i forget who carries the signal for grand valley but if you charter. have a charter okay so if you have a tv on campus in one of the dorms and you are connected to cable uh you can watch any of the gv tv productions that they're currently airing and also in the 60s or 70s grand valley had an underground newspaper that kind of got some people in trouble if i remember correctly i don't remember much yeah. about it but yeah. i remember learning about it and one of the big things was that they published uh, the F word and got in a lot of trouble for it Yikes. because it was an underground paper. Yeah. Uh, the Rapidian was launched in 09. Oh, cool. Been around for a little while, for a, a little longer than I thought it, thought it had. But it's uh, the Rapidian uh, put on by the Community Media Center, um, which also operates the Wealthy Theater. But yeah, it's kind of a kind of a citizen journalist. Um, kind of crowdsourced news um, website. And you can uh, you can submit articles. Yeah, yeah. That That's, I mean, that's one of the only ways that uh, um, articles get published on there is from, from citizens. Sure. Interesting. Uh, so so the source that I mainly used was um, the, the book, uh, The Story of Grand Rapids by uh, C.C. Lydens. I uh, sourced some information from aitelephone.com. 
And also, my article from history.com about uh, telephone operators uh, and, and, and that Alexander Graham Bell preferred the greeting ahoy. My sources are from a lot of Googling and Wikipedia pages today, but I got my info on WGVU from a very old interview um, that was produced by WGVU. So thank you to Andrew Murray for getting that to me. Um, and then some more knowledge that I learned in college from Dr. Leno Kelly. So thank you for that. I'm sure that, um, that Andrew probably owed you a favor or two. <laughs> so maybe, maybe don't thank him that. <laughs> but Dr. O'Kelly certainly deserves great things. Yes. Sorry, Andrew. I don't even particularly the I know who, who he is, and we've spoken once or twice. I didn't mean to throw him under the bus. <laughs> uh, he certainly deserves thanks as well. should hear the things I say about you, Matt. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so are we going to go uh, right after this and get our uh, amateur radio license? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to do that, but uh, but I'm glad to know they're out there. I have some nerd friends that are, are plugged in a little bit that way. <laughs> <laughs>